Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I've got two medical students with me today. We're going to tackle cannabis. And let's start off with introductions. David, let's start with you. Yeah, I'm David Jeffs. I'm a third year medical student at Rocky Vista. And what else do you want to know about me? Probably not as much today, because you'll have your chance to really <laughs> spout out everything about you in a couple of days when okay. we tackle opioid addiction associated with orthopedic procedures in adolescence. Does yes. that sound about right? Yep, that and sports injuries. Sports injuries, very good. And uh, today though, let's do one more introduction. The but man of the hour. <laughs> um, my name is Kyle Skolton. I'm a third year medical student at RVU as well. Um, and today we'll just be tackling a lot of high yield things as far as the boards go with uh, marijuana and maybe marijuana intoxication and then dive in the weeds a little bit about uh, some of the links that uh, marijuana has had to schizophrenia. Pun intended, right? That's right. Very well done. Uh, so, Kyle, you are headed what direction at the end of uh, your fourth year of medical school? So you're in your third year now, mm -hmm. and you're leaning towards a couple of specialties. What specialties are you leaning towards? Um, the big one I'm leaning towards is internal med, um, hopefully going into GI. Um, but I still haven't really ruled out general surgery or... You know, maybe there'll be a curveball thrown at me here in the future. So I guess we'll really find out, um, you know, probably way too late than it should. In about a year. Yeah. When the match state's over. Very good. Good. To, very good to have you here. And uh, you'll look forward to the same kinds of questions uh, when you come around. Tell us how you decided to pick this topic to discuss as your project. Um. Well, it kind of spurred off of uh, the presentation that you did a week or two ago um, to some of the advanced care providers. Um, when we were researching all the different fun facts about psychiatry, one of the things that really piqued my interest was how marijuana could be related to schizophrenia and what links are there now that have really been established uh, with that connection. Very good. So let's start off with some things that might be helpful for the shelf exam and maybe even the boards. I think you have a, kind of a summary of a classic question that you might encounter on the shelf exam. Do you want to go ahead and present that? Absolutely. So the classic question is usually a male. Um, definitely could be a female as well, but as far as all the board materials I've seen, is usually a younger male um, who was at a party or was hanging out with some friends and all of a sudden he's having panic attack-like symptoms. You know, he's complaining that he can't breathe, um, that he's freaking out, that he just really can't get a hold of his emotions. Um, and so typically he'll present to the ER um, with an elevated blood pressure, and then as far as the rest of the vital signs go, pretty normal. Maybe a little bit of tachycardia, maybe a little elevated respiratory rate, but no temperature, um, nothing that would really tell you, no, um, small pupils, no dilated pupils, nothing like that. But you will see some conjunctival injection as well as maybe a dry mouth and really nothing more than that. Maybe increased appetite as well. Increased appetite for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so so you've now named the criteria for cannabis intoxication, right? So uh, recent use of cannabis followed up by some sort of clinically significant problematic behavior or psychological change. And this has a lot of different things in it, like motor coordination, euphoria, anxiety, sensation of slowed time, impaired judgment, social withdrawal, and it needs to happen shortly after the cannabis use. What I'm struck by is the range of symptoms that it could be, and I think one of the clues that 
the shelf exam quite often has is found in that next criteria, which is you need to have two of the following present, either conjunctival injection, increased appetite, dry mouth, or tachycardia. So any of two of those four are kind of the things that you need to be watching for, I think, on that shelf exam. For intoxication. And I remember doing a practice question like that where they mentioned two of those things, the tachycardia, the dry mouth, and, the, well, three, the con conjunctival injection, but did not mention anything about appetite. And I think they've tried to uh, steer clear of the hitting all four at once just to make it a little harder on us. And then I think it's probably also worth pointing out that cannabis withdrawal, mm -hmm. uh, it will happen when somebody has stopped using cannabis that has been used either for a long period of time or heavy usage, and that through more of the following signs show up, you can be irritable, angry, aggressive, nervous, nervous or anxious is the second criteria, changes in sleep is the third criteria, appetite changes in the fourth criteria, uh, restlessness in the fifth, depression in the sixth, and then at least one of the following physical symptoms causing significant discomfort, so abdominal pain, shakiness, tremors, sweating, fevers, chills, and headaches, right? So those are the kinds of things that you'd watch for in uh, marijuana withdrawal, which you might also see on the shelf exam. Absolutely. Now, one of the other things I think you were struck by with marijuana and potentially an overlap with your field that we discussed in preparation for that conference was the, the cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I think it's possible to see a question based on that as well. Why don't you describe cannabis hyperemesis syndrome fairly quickly, yeah. and then we'll get to the meat of the conversation. So essentially what cannabis hyperemesis syndrome is, is just uncontrolled vomiting with a essentially no reason. Um, before it was previously classified as psychogenic, um, but now they've come to find out that there is a pathway that's not very well established, but some theories on how cannabis can induce vomiting cyclically in a chronic user. So typically you'll see somebody who's been chronically using marijuana. Me personally, I've seen patients who have been diagnosed with this and their, you know, their mom or dad kind of gives them a nudge to give you a little more information on exactly what they're doing behind closed doors. Um, and the big thing is that they have this history of vomiting and the only way they can control it is with a hot shower, a really hot shower, like as far as high as it can go. Um, and that seems to reduce their symptoms. And the only treatment for that and typically what the answer will be on the boards is how do you treat it? Well, you have to stop cannabis use entirely. There's a reinforcement cycle with this. Describe yes. that if you wouldn't mind. Yes, there is. Um, so the biggest part with the reinforcement cycle is that these people are getting nauseous, they're vomiting. Well, in order to control these symptoms, they use cannabis in a way that you know has been FDA approved to control nausea and vomiting, is they use this cannabis in order to control their symptoms and just perpetuates this cycle of vomiting, continually using marijuana, and then vomiting again. So just to be clear, I don't think uh, cannabis has an FDA approval. I think Marinol, which is the <laughs> nine THC, nine tetrahydrocannabidiol, yeah, or Canadol. Uh, so nine THC has that FDA approval in the form of Marinol. Right? Yeah, excuse me, <laughs> that's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that that I was wondering about as we were putting together that presentation, do we see hyperemesis syndrome with use of Marinol? That's an excellent question. I haven't seen any literature on that. I didn't run across anything either, so I don't know that 9-THC uh, is the, the cause of this, even though that seems to be something that affects the GI on a level of nausea, right? The mm -hmm. way that uh, the body and the brain respond to 
whatever those signals are. So, yeah. all right, something that we'll be looking forward to in the future. Now, before we move to uh, the discussion about the relationship between marijuana use and schizophrenia, were, were there any other things that we needed to pick up on uh, in preparation for the shelf exam regarding marijuana in terms of substance misuse and how it might show up on the shelf exam or the kinds of things we need to know for that? Nothing that I really, I think we covered the main high yield topics. Um, something I wanted to bring up was um, just the FDA approved uh, marijuana derivatives or THC derivatives that you could potentially see on the shelf. You've touched on one already, the um, Marinol, which is also called Dronabinol, um, mm -hmm. as well as Nabilone, which is called Sesamet, um, brand name wise. Um, and that is FDA approved for nausea and patients undergoing chemotherapy and um, to stimulate appetite in those with wasting syndrome and AIDS. Um, now it's not a first-line treatment for uh, chemotherapy but it is one used after you get done with you know Zofran or those other first-line medications. Okay and then uh, one of the the main differences between those substances the nabilone is synthetic. What I don't know is if it's still bioequivalent uh, binds similarly or if it's exactly 9-THC. And I was never able to figure that out. Were you ever, ever able to find anything out along those lines? No, the biggest, I mean, as far as the board questions go, they're just kind of going through the pathways and that's kind of the emphasis that it's really been about as far as the stuff that I've seen for studying. Okay. And then the other medication you probably won't see on the shelf uh, right away is Epidiolex, mm -hmm. the brand name for cannabidiol, uh, which is used to treat epilepsy in a couple of very specific situations, Dravet's syndrome and then one other one. Uh, Lennox Gusto. Lennox Gusto. Okay. So there are your FDA approved uses for derivatives of, or of cannabis. And of course, cannabis has over a hundred cannabinoids and then it has 30, 50, depending on the cannabis plant you're looking at, uh, terpenes. And then in addition to that, it has other molecules. And then I think if you burn those molecules, you create new molecules, right? <laughs> sure. So, so this is a, a, when we talk about cannabis, we're not just talking about cannabidiol. We're not just talking about 9-THC. Um, we're, we're talking about cannabis today, mm -hmm. right? Not, not just the metabolites or the breakdown products. So let's, uh, let, me, let me start off the discussion about schizophrenia and marijuana smoking or cannabis smoking with the question. How would we do a randomized controlled prospect, prospective trial to determine if marijuana smoking causes schizophrenia? Well, I think people have attempted to do it. Um, I think it's not as simple as that. Uh, it's definitely, definitely difficult when you go to, I'm going to give people marijuana and I'm going to give no people marijuana and I want to see if they develop schizophrenia or not. Um, so it becomes kind of a kind of a challenging association to make after a while. So there are some studies, right? We can't make everybody that does this <laughs> research says we we can't do this, right? It, the, there's a belief that it's probably unethical. Um, so there have been a number of ways that we've tried to figure out this association, and I think one of the early studies to do this was a group of Swedish conscripts. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about this study. So this was a really interesting study. It was published in 1987. Um, and they had 45,000 Swedish conscripts, um, and they followed them over 15 years. And what they found is that they were two times more likely to develop schizophrenia um, if they had smoked and if they were using, heavily using marijuana, they were six times more likely to develop 
schizophrenia. Now that's a pretty, you know, phenomenal statistic, but if you break it down into how many people actually ended up developing schizophrenia, it was only 3% of the conscripts. So the, the prevalence of schizophrenia, and I think this sometimes shows up uh, in some form or another, depends on what you read. It used to be, as I recall, about 1%. didn't matter who you talked to. didn't matter where you went, about 1%. That seems to be changing somewhat. I think the rate is somewhere between about 0.6% and one2 or 1.3%, and that depends on the population where you're at, maybe what the genetic risk factors are and socioeconomic risk factors and social or, or environmental risk factors become, right? So, so this is one of the early studies then, uh, yes. the Swedish conscripts. This is followed up by a couple of other studies. And I think there are, what, maybe two more, um, two more longitudinal studies, right? Yes. Can you, I think there's another one, not nearly as many people. I think the Swedish conscripts study, by the time it was finished, had almost 50,000 people in it. Uh, there was updated articles that have been published on that. Mm -hmm. But I think there was a study out of the Netherlands also. And that might be the Van Oss study or maybe a different study. Tell me a little bit about that study. Um, so there was the Van Oss study, which is uh, derived from the Nemesis study, um, which was looking at various psychiatric conditions. Uh, this was one of the big findings of it. Um, and what they did is they took, I believe it was 4,000 a little over 4,000 subjects, and they used random sampling from about 90 Dutch municipalities. Um, and what they were trying to do is they were measuring psychosis. So not necessarily schizophrenia, but very close as far as symptomatology. And what they found is that you're three times more likely to present with psychotic symptoms at a follow-up, um, and it's also related incrementally to dosing as well. So, so we're starting to see some nuances, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the first study from uh, the Zamet, I think, is the author, the Swedish Conscript study, just says, hey, there's a signal here. We think it might double the risk if you're smoking, but not as many details. We're mm -hmm. starting to get more details now with the study out of the Netherlands, which says it looks like the dose of the, or the marijuana you're smoking matters. Now, did you read how they knew the doses of the marijuana? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how they knew what the dosage was. So this is kind of an interesting story. Um, sorry, I got a spam call that I have to quiet so nobody hears my phone <laughs> buzzing in the background there. So the, apparently in the Netherlands, they do sampling of the marijuana that's sold. So all the sampling comes from a couple of locations. It's either um, grown outside uh, the Netherlands or grown inside. And then there are two kinds of marijuana that are, I think, that are generally sold. So they go to the coffee shops where the marijuana is sold. They're able to get uh, samples of this. Then they measure the, the uh, THC and they measure the CBD in each of those. And they start looking for the relative uh, dosing of the smoking based on the number of marijuana cigarettes that are smoked and the relative potency of the marijuana that was used at the period of time. So I thought this was actually a very clever study to, be, uh, to look more specifically at how dosing might matter as well. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably one of the better studies on dosing, even though there are some other studies about that as well. I think these were followed by cohort studies, right? Um, now, there are some other longitudinal studies. I think there's one out of England. Yes. Uh, do you want to tell me a little bit about that one? And while you're kind of getting your thoughts about that, 
Follow that up with the Dunedin study. By the way, we had to look that up on the internet for pronunciation, right? Yes, Dunedin. Dunedin. Um, and you can pronounce it the English way or the uh, proper English way, and it's slightly different, but we'll do as best as we can as Americans to um, describe it properly. Um, as far as the Dunedin study goes, we kind of had a little confusion on how viable of a study it was. If not viable, maybe what were the implications of it? Rather, um, it was a study of a, from 11 to 26 year olds in the Netherlands as well. Correct? Uh, or, I th- no, I think, uh, so I think this is the Dunedin study is one of the New Zealand New studies, Zealand. I think. And they had a prospective study that I, I believe started at birth and at age 26, they still had 96% of the original participants wow. uh, participating, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a great longitudinal study. <laughs> But instead of having questions that allowed them to incorporate data about smoking marijuana, I think they had to do a case control study with it. So they pulled out about three-fourths of the thousand or so participants. And with those uh, 700 and change comparators, they had uh, case control with those. And they came to uh, some conclusions about marijuana smoking may not increase the conversion to schizophrenia, mm-hmm. but it seems to affect the significance or the, um, the, the severity of schizophrenia, I think, is what we kind of left that article yeah. with. Absolutely. And that's, this was an interesting one as well because this was the first one that I've seen in all the research where they um, ruled out um, psychiatric illness at, when they were 11 years old. So I think it really caused a big impact in the study as far as the outcomes went with schizophrenia. Yeah, because when they first looked at this, any smoking... Um, the risk of developing schizophrenia was almost four times, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they took out um, people who were already exhibiting symptoms of psychosis at age 11, that signal disappeared, right? Which I think is, holy cow, kids showing up with symptoms of schizophrenia at age 11, that's yeah. almost you know, terrifying. Extremely terrifying. Um, and then I think the other London study, the, there's a study out of London, right? I think that you also found. I did find it, and I'm having some trouble uh, <laughs> trying to organize my notes correctly. So if it'd be all right with you, maybe we move on to the McGrath study. That would be great. So this okay. is a study out of Australia, and I think the first time I read this was maybe seven or eight years ago, and they make a strong case that schizophrenia is related to marijuana smoking. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little more about this study. So the McGrath paper was really interesting. The first interesting thing about it is that it used this, there were siblings involved in the study as well, um, which was important aspect kind of ruling out some of the environmental causes that may also be attributed to the link between you know schizophrenia and the environment that you're having so control essentially controlling the environment and adding that variable of marijuana was a really interesting outcome um, and I thought really attributed to the causality of marijuana uh, smoking and schizophrenia They also had, in addition to this, comparing these sibling pairs, which they had 228 sibling pairs, um, they also had about 3,800 single kids, or Mm -hmm. kids that didn't have siblings that were involved in the study. Um, And they essentially categorized them at age 14 for drugs and alcohol to kind of separate them from the pack and then separate them in their own category versus people that were solely smoking marijuana. And from there, they were able to decide, if is this actually a variable that's important in the causation of schizophrenia? 
or the relationship to schizophrenia. Or the rela- I don't know yeah. that anybody's been the relationship comfortable rather. saying causation yeah, yet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what they found is that the longer duration since first cannabis use was associated with um, psychosis. So the earlier you smoked, the earlier in life you smoked cannabis, the more likely you were to have psychosis later in life. There are a couple of terms that um, are used commonly in this literature. And I, I don't know that they are standardized, but there are a couple of groups that seem to use the same standards for definitions. One of those is frequency of use is uh, one time per week or more mm-hmm. was described as high use. Duration, high, uh, long duration of use was described as being five years or more. Do those sound like the terms that you saw popping up or were there other terms that you, you saw in terms of uh, frequency and duration of use as being important? Um, yeah, that was the big one. Some I've, I can't remember exactly what study, but there were categorizations where it was zero to one times a week versus one to three and then three or more as well or some of the other categorizations that I found um, for separating people into different cohorts to categorize them in the study. So there are lots of, uh, we, we, we've now mentioned a lot of different studies that have a lot of different conclusions, suggesting largely some association between either increasing risk of onset of schizophrenia or increasing severity of, on, uh, of schizophrenia. There are other studies that talk about earlier onset of schizophrenia. I think those are among the articles that we went through. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges I think that we have in this, or maybe there are three challenges, right? If, if we're going to be very careful about the way we think about the data, rather than simply assume that schizophrenia is caused, or some schizophrenia is caused by smoking marijuana, um, we also need to rule out a couple of things, right? Or we need to make sure that the attribution is correct. It may be that some portion of schizophrenia is caused by smoking marijuana, but we also need to understand if psychosis vulnerability predisposes somebody to the use of marijuana. There are a couple of articles out there that suggest that. I think the first one that we ran across was referenced in an article by uh, Kassir and Hart, Mm -hmm. and they talked about this article published in 1978, right, that talks about how uh, our patients who are more likely to develop schizophrenia have a cluster of syndromes that, that might describe them and how that might fit neatly into the description of a shared vulnerability. In other words, uh, our patients that develop schizophrenia have a vulnerability that's shared not only for schizophrenia but for the use of marijuana. Mm-hmm. The second thing that we have to kind of sort out is if cannabis is just a proxy measure for schizophrenia, right? Do people who smoke marijuana, uh, are they there because they are naturally isolating? Are they you know, moved out from groups of people by the illness anyway, right? And then the third thing that is often talked about is does cannabis simply help people to cope? And is that the reason why you see cannabis and schizophrenia running together? Did you find good answers to those questions? You know, we talked about this before, we, earlier this morning when we were talking about the podcast. And the biggest thing that I, I guess the biggest conclusion of this entire talk is that, you know, no matter how much we research this, we really have no idea what's going on. Um, there's different genetic uh, variabilities that have been implicated. There's different, maybe we saw CMV infections could have been implicated. I wasn't entirely convinced by that study. Um, 
and the biggest thing, I guess, what Kassir and Hart were arguing is that even if we, even if marijuana does play a role in this, we don't actually understand what's going on. And that's maybe a bigger question to actually address than does this kind of, does this environmental exposure somewhat attribute to this? Mm-hmm. And I do remember, Dr. Rowney, you uh, showed me an article earlier by Verdot that talked about how the, um, let's see what they say. They say there is no evidence that use of cannabis is increased following occurrence of psychotic experiences. And they use that to suggest that um, maybe we can rule out that psychosis is what is causing increased use of cannabis uh, and maybe let us induce the reverse relationship that cannabis happens first. Yeah, I, I think that that study was very interesting to me, and I think it hints at, at, at this idea um, that cannabis isn't really used necessarily to address the anxiety of voices or the problems associated with uh, hallucinations and, and psychosis spectrum symptoms. And this was a fascinating study. Apparently they gave, uh, what, somewhere around 75 students uh, these, like, electronic devices that if they smoked marijuana they needed to, you know, uh, <laughs> report in, or if they had a symptom of psychosis they needed to report in. And it looked like the, the direction of activity was pretty clearly smoke marijuana, have some sort of symptom following that that was psychotic spectrum. Does that sound right based on what you read? Absolutely. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about some of the challenges we ran into that make it a little bit harder to say there's a definitive causal relationship between smoking marijuana and uh, development of schizophrenia. So you and I talked, uh, Kyle, earlier about, hey, we've, we've seen this really strong uptick in smoking marijuana in a couple of different places. In Australia, they looked at the uptick that happened in the 80s, and by 2006, really hadn't seen escalation of symptoms or escalation of prevalence of schizophrenia. There were a couple of studies, I think, a study in England said, hey, we're too early to know about this because the escalation of marijuana use in England might have happened maybe around uh, the 90s rather than as early as it did in in Australia. There might be some evidence coming out of, I think, uh, Sweden Mm -hmm. or Switzerland, I don't remember which, that suggests that there's some increased rates of schizophrenia and it might be related to the escalation of smoking marijuana. But this this is one of the, like, big questions that we're scratching our head about, right? Why is it that we're not seeing more people with psychosis show up? That's an excellent question. My biggest question would be mental health or mental illness or however you want to address it. It's such a, it's so stigmatized in some parts of the United States. So getting data on maybe, hey, you know, first and foremost, it's stigmatized in parts of the country to be smoking marijuana. And then it's stigmatized as well to have these intrusive thoughts or these behaviors or whatever's going on. So as far as these uptakes and it's hard to necessarily quantify because I think some people are very, if not, you know, unfortunately, maybe ashamed of what's going on with them when in reality they actually need help and people to support them. You're talking about stigma with uh, mental health and stigma with uh, marijuana. I don't know that we ran across a lot of data that would say that, mm-hmm. but what you're uh, hypothesizing, but I think, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I want to take you back to, I believe, 1938. <laughs> 
very early in the 30s. Uh, so a movie comes the out. 1900s. So so the, the, a movie is produced called Reefer Madness. Mm -hmm. You and I watched the first section of this, right? Uh, yes. Movies are a little bit different uh, than compared to now, right? You can actually watch this movie on the internet. Uh, and I think they're making the case that marijuana is dangerous. It's a scourge. It's the most dangerous drug possible. Um, you and I watched it, and it, it felt like there was maybe as significant as the risk is for doubling the risk of schizophrenia, right? Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. It seemed like this made the case that everybody who smoked marijuana would have problems. Not everybody who smokes marijuana develops schizophrenia. Yes. Not everybody that drinks alcohol while pregnant has a baby that has fetal alcohol syndrome. And not everybody that smoked tobacco ended up having lung cancer, right? Uh, those, those rates, I think, were published in the Kassir paper, where they, or Kassir, maybe, where they talked about, uh, K-S-I-R is how the last name is spelled, <laughs> where they talked about you know, the probability of these things happening based on this risk-taking behavior, right? So uh, I, I think you and I came, both agreed, not came to the idea, but we both agreed and I think independently came to this idea that until we have some sort of mechanistic explanation for why this happens, it's going to be hard to really convince anybody one way or the other. And even if we do find good data for that, um, it fits in a bigger picture of what are the risks and benefits of changing, right? And those things are beyond the scope of this discussion. Absolutely. What are the ways that we might be able to figure out the relationship between smoking marijuana and development of schizophrenia that have been either thrown out there as studies or that have been looked at that are not, you know, jumping into the chemical names that really bore people <laughs> during a podcast? Um, well, one of the interesting ways that I found was a, na a Nature Magazine article, um, and it, what it tried to do in a very complicated matter, I, we discussed this earlier in the day, um, when it's titled Molecular Psychiatry, I knew I might have been a little over my head when I was reading it. <laughs> you weren't um, the only one, by the way. <laughs> was this the Mendelian Inheritance? Uh, yeah, this is a phenomenal study and very interesting. I think uh, probably grounds for a future podcast to understand the, what they were doing with the study. Mm -hmm. But they essentially used a lot of different genetic markers. They used SNPs in a bunch of different ways to try to quantify if this actually if there actually is a causal relationship between marijuana and schizophrenia and the biggest thing that i liked from that study because i kind of ended up getting lost in the weeds when it got to the genetic portion but before that is what they did is they did do a meta-analysis on a lot of the studies that we talked about um, and the odds ratio on that was a 1.5 so i thought it was at least a little interesting that after going through all of these different studies and doing a meta-analysis on it, there's at least some form of relationship if we don't necessarily understand it. Mm -hmm. um, but there is some good data that maybe. Yeah, and I think, I think that's the important part about this. There is a relationship we don't understand it. This, uh, this um, Mendelian, uh, what was it called, MR? Yeah. Um, and I don't remember what the R stands for right now, but this the, the way of approaching this, if I understood correctly, was they, they get a genome-wide association study sample, so a GWAS study, and then what they did is they picked 10 SNPs randomly. Now why they picked those, I'm not entirely sure, but the best I could tell was that they felt like they were associated with increased risk of smoking marijuana, not necessarily schizophrenia, which gets back to that sh you know, problem of shared vulnerability mm -hmm. in a sense, I think. 
And uh, when they went through that, then they made some extrapolations about population-wide risks and prevalences. And at that point, I think I was starting to get lost, right? <laughs> uh, does that sound like I got at least that far correctly? or does That sounds 100% correct. And that's about where I got lost as well as I saw genome-wide, you know, studies and everything. And Yep, it went over my head pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the way they were doing the MR research, uh, Mendelian research, I think is what it was called. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as it got to that, I, I really wasn't able to follow it. And I, I started thinking I needed to find a YouTube video to be able to understand what that, what that means. Uh, how did that article conclude? Did they believe there was some association with genes in, uh, did they believe that there was some association with genes to schizophrenia from smoking marijuana? I, th I believe so. I think what they were looking at was when they were smoking, how the genes were affected in a wide population to see if this was actually related in some some way or another. Um, as far as the genetics go, like I said before, I think it was they were trying to prove that they're trying to rule out maybe a genetic cause and seeing if there was a outside of the genetics, if this actually may affect people in some form of pathway. Um, so you're saying that they were trying to say that once you subtract out the genes, then the smoking becomes the independent factor. That's what I believe they were okay. doing. But and see, and I thought they were. <laughs> that tells you how complicated this article was. I tried to read it, I think, three times, and and my my feeling was they were looking for a gene by environment interaction. And and again, I think you made it through it farther than I did. <laughs> uh, so changing gears just a little bit, the other the other models that they've looked at, I saw some studies on rats. Did you read any of the rat studies associated with smoking marijuana? I was reading that or excuse me, let me walk it back, that there was an increased, was there an increased risk in rat uh, for the populations rat models. for It seems like that's what it looks like. Yeah, the rat models look like there's some data there, but it hasn't been able to be translated mm -hmm. to human models very well yet, was what I was left with. But I was hoping you had something maybe more clear than that or had found the same kind of information. Well, what I do have is a question on how do you tell that a rat has can be diagnosed as schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> so they have some really great models for uh, anxiety and depression, and I've read more about those models for those rats, but I haven't read as much about the uh, schizophrenia rats. Absolutely. And to be honest, I've read about the anxiety and depression rat models a couple of times, and I think uh, I would still be very hard-pressed to try and explain that in any way <laughs> that was helpful on a podcast. Yeah. Um, another thing I just want to bring up, now that we're kind of talking a little more lightheartedly about some of the topics that we have discussed is the Trinidad study that you and I had previously brought up. Now, <laughs> as far as contributing to the literature, I don't know if we could necessarily say that's what that did, but in the methodology, they brought up the fact that the researchers would have the teachers administer the um, questionnaire. And they would watch the kids talk about whether or not they had smoked marijuana. And I just had a, just a very good picture in my head of my third grade teacher looking over my shoulder and seeing whether or not I was maybe smoking <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah, the, the accuracy of the reveal was uncertain at that point, was it? And I don't know which way that would change the data is the interesting thing. I was wondering if uh, the kids that were more vulnerable to schizophrenia might be less likely to say something about it, right? Mm -hmm. Or more likely. And I, and I don't know we, that we know the answer to that. One of the other things that came out of our study was this very confusing signal that pops up in the clinical high-risk groups, right? So there's this 
a group of patients, of people that have been diagnosed as high risk for conversion to schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And when they look at the effect of marijuana on this group, it's harder to find that signal that they find in other cohort and prospectively uh, monitored groups. Did you read very many of those uh, clinical high-risk uh, conversion stories or, or papers? I read one, I believe it was from Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very, it was interesting. And I, to be entirely honest, I couldn't necessarily, I didn't know what to make of like the data of what they were talking about. I wasn't entirely sure if because they were high-risk, this is what like they were doing, or how they were able to quantify it or maybe come to an inclusion at all. My, I think I was left with the impression after a couple of articles, and I don't know if I kept rereading the same article or not, but my, my impression <laughs> was that our patients that are identified as clinical high risk already, um, that the use of marijuana doesn't necessarily change the tra- trajectory, which I think is fascinating. It seems mm-hmm. like that signal would show up more quickly in that group. Uh, I think it might have increased the rate or the time of conversion or moved that time of conversion earlier um, but I don't know that they had any implications for that at the time of the study or studies. And I just looked up a, a German study in the folder you had and it talked about um, how cannabis use over the course of schizophrenia increases positive symptoms and reduces the negative symptoms such as affective flattening meaning makes them worse, right? So worse negative symptoms, worse positive symptoms. Uh, There's a a fair amount of data out there that suggests that you have increased rate of relapse, increased rate of hospitalization, as well associated with smoking marijuana. So even, uh, I think one of the other important take-home points, if you're treating patients who are smoking marijuana and have schizophrenia symptoms, is if you can stop the marijuana smoking, you generally have better outcomes. I remember reading a study once that suggested that people who previously smoked marijuana and develop schizophrenia who quit smoking marijuana actually have better outcomes than people who never smoked marijuana. And I thought that was incredibly uh, confusing to me. (laughs) Yeah, very confusing. Uh, So there's something about the marijuana story that I think is just really, really unknown. And I think part of that is that there's still a question about whether or not cannabidiol may have some sort of antipsychotic effect, right? I don't think that's panning out really strongly, Mm -hmm. but there's questions about that. Even though we identified THC in 64, they didn't, under, they didn't identify even the CB1 receptor, the cannabinoid 1 receptor, until, what, 88, almost 1990. So it's a relatively new discovery in terms of the field. And even things like anandamide and uh, 2-AG, which are molecules that bind at the CB1 and CB2 receptors, these are also relatively newly discovered, right? And so the... Uh, endocannabinoids, as they're called, this entire system uh, generally seems to be less described than some of the other sim- uh, systems in the brain. And I do think that uh, the, de-legal- the um, decriminalization of marijuana may have some effect on how that research goes and what that leads us to know about schizophrenia. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And just, I mean, as far as just adding even more to this discussion, making it even more convoluted and confusing is I don't know what you found, but just the difference in onset of schizophrenia I thought was really interesting um, for chronic users. One of the studies I found was another one from the Netherlands um, that was published in 2006. It was only done in males, which I thought was kind of interesting, but they found a seven-year difference in the onset of psychosis in smokers versus non-smokers. Was that a clinical high-risk group, or was that uh, was that just across the board? I believe I think... this is just a general population. Okay. 
So lots, lots of information to this, lots of caveats, I think, up to this point. And I, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we haven't talked about that we probably should have mentioned. Um, as far as everything goes, I think we've done, we've done a good job at confusing people on if there's a causal relationship or not. <laughs> um, I kind of talked about genetics before, and, you know, it's a relatively new field as far as connections go, or concept as far as connections go. Um, but one of the big things that I saw was how AKT1 was implicated, as well as COMTs, and the different subtypes and how that could potentially cause a link, uh, link to schizophrenia as well. Now, I'm not sure how good the data is on that yet, but it's definitely an interesting, um, interesting new advancement in a possible pathway. The other recept or the other uh, gene that I think I ran across. So I saw the AKT1 article, and I think one of the other articles that I came across was the CB1 receptor gene. Uh, there are 12 SNPs that account for most of the variability in that gene, and MRI of, of people who have uh, that they did the study about showed a possible relationship to the RS1272071 SNP. Of course. Of course. <laughs> um, and with uh, neurocognitive impairment. Um, so, so I think one of the things I took away from this was the overlap between... So I'm, I'm going to take even a further step back. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and close down the podcast with our last thoughts each, and I'll throw this in as my last thought. So, uh, David, uh, last thoughts on the cannabis podcast, the cannabis and, and schizophrenia podcast. Well, I am thoroughly confused, like you warned might happen, <laughs> and I hope that my stomach rumbling hasn't overs <laughs> overspoken my voice, because uh, it's been going crazy. I think it's the anxiety about uh, what Monday brings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, thank you, David. Um, as far as just last thoughts from me, I definitely think that there's some good evidence that we found that there might be a relationship, but there's also some good evidence that maybe, you know, this is this is just one tiny pathway and a pathway that's so complicated that we haven't even touched the surface yet. And I guess I'm just really excited to kind of see where this goes with the advancement of genetic technology, as well as just I guess the uh, openness of our society with marijuana and just exactly see if we can come to a conclusion on what's going on here and if how we could better treat these patients. Yeah, I, I like that. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're leaning towards the idea that schizophrenia, that uh, heavy, frequent use of marijuana seems to have an effect in the development of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that relationship. And it, I don't think it's the most unreasonable position to take that there's a, you know, that this might be happening. I, I think uh, the other possibilities don't have nearly as much data behind them. Um, but then again, we haven't definitively proved this. So I think you're right that the molecular, uh, the molecular pathway will help us be more convinced about either a shared vulnerability gene mm -hmm. or a, uh, an environmental effect on our genome that leads to development of schizophrenia. One of the two, right? And I think we'll probably have to understand proteonomics um, better to be able to make that determination. Absolutely. Now, the other thing that I think is a last thought of mine, so I, I, think, I, I think that's where I landed, that there's a lot of good data to suggest that smoking marijuana is unhelpful 
in terms of the risk of developing schizophrenia. And if that's not enough to be careful with cannabis, consider further the effects on motivation, the effects on schooling, and, and many other problems that can uh, develop because of that. Now, the other thing that I was surprised by, uh, a number of years ago, we were looking at um, prodromal schizophrenia, uh, early recognition of high risk to convert to schizophrenia individuals. And I thought, my goodness, this seems like an impossible task, right? How do you possibly pick out people who, uh, adolescents, who are at high risk for development of schizophrenia? And yet, a lot of the studies we looked at were looking at use of marijuana within those populations, and they were identifying uh, a tremendous number of people that ended up converting. I think 30% was one of the studies I saw. And so I think that one of the things that came out of this podcast for me was that there really is a lot of great data being generated by groups that are looking at early onset schizophrenia and high risk populations for development of schizophrenia mm -hmm. and tracking that and trying to identify the environmental um, contributors to development of schizophrenia. The other thing that I'm struck by is that recognizing the environmental uh, effects that might lead to schizophrenia, what it does is allows us to potentially build uh, models of schizophrenia that are brain-based and molecularly based that might provide for some sort of uh, intervention, right? Our treatments for schizophrenia at this point are very limited. We have, unfortunately, an armamentarium of uh, 20 or so antipsychotic medications, roughly, and even with those, there's a tremendous number of our patients that, that don't even have reduction of symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, or very modest reduction of symptoms, let alone recovery. And so we're a long way from having recovery. We're a long way from having all of our patients be able to live lives that they find enjoyable, not tormented by voices and so forth. So I think that was the other takeaway that I had is that this discussion about marijuana is probably best viewed nested within the, uh, the viewpoint of how do we start identifying schizophrenia, the potential to evolve into schizophrenia at earlier ages. What can we do? Um, what kind of interventions can we have that might reduce those risks? And if we reduce those risks, what does that mean, right? And, and so forth. And so I'm, I think I'm excited about the implications of this research, even if I'm left thinking, gosh, I'm not quite 100% convinced that, that marijuana, marijuana use causes schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. I'm relatively convinced of that, right? I still would never prescribe marijuana to adolescents. Right? I think that that risk is for schizophrenia scares me too much. Absolutely. Whether that's the right risk balance assessment for other people, I can't speak to that. Right. But for me, that risk is high enough that I would that I would back away from it. And what I can hope continues to happen is that we're able to explore these factors that might lead to increased risk of schizophrenia, so that few, as few people as possible uh, are taken out of our society by this. Right. That's kind of my take home. Any other last comments that you guys have based on uh, what we've done? All right, you guys have a two o'clock grand rounds, and uh, you have two minutes to spare for that. Awesome. On that note, guys, thank you so much, and team out. Team out. Thank you very much. <laughs>